Okay, good morning for our fourth Sunday in Advent as we're talking about the Magi today. Um, and if you want to get ahead a little bit, we're in Matthew chapter 2 this morning as we uh, celebrate the Magi and their worship of Jesus. And they remind us of such great lessons that God has for us. So before we get to the Magi, um, when I mention these things, what comes to your mind? The Mona Lisa? The Scream? And Impression Sunrise? Anybody know what those are or do we have to go back to school? Hopefully you know what the Mona Lisa is at least, right? That is a painting. a painting, right? Anybody know what the scream is? It's another painting. Another painting and impression sunrise. Well, Take a wild guess. Painting. It's another painting. Very good. <laughs> we have all passed the test this morning. So all three are famous paintings, even though most of our congregation has never heard of them before. Um, they are famous paintings that if you're in that art world, they're they're highly valued and they're treasured and um, they have a couple things in common which kind of apply to our message this morning with the Magi. Uh, the not, first thing is they are all, in the world's eyes, considered tremendously valuable. In fact, they're, some are considered priceless. I mean, when you hear about the Mona Lisa and you see the pictures where people go, I mean, there are hundreds and thousands of people that take these vacations just to go and see this painting that is there hanging on the wall, surrounded by plexiglass and security cameras. So they're all deemed exquisitely valuable in the world's eyes. The other thing is, which is really interesting, is all three of these paintings were at one time stolen. <laughs> okay? The Mona Lisa, as we know, was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. You did know that one, right? Yeah. You know what century? No. 16th century, but in 1911, a museum worker walked out of the Louvre in France with the Mona Lisa under a smock. He later expressed that he thought the masterpiece belonged to Italy instead of France, so he took it. And of course, 1911, you could just pull it off the wall and take it with you. Two years later, he was caught trying to sell the painting, okay? The Scream, that's that weird painting if you ever see that. It looks kind of like a ghost with this big elongated mouth, not a very pretty picture. Um, but the scream was painted by Edvard Munch, and I probably pronounced that wrong. It was painted in the early 1900s, and in 2004, the scream was ripped off a museum by armed robbers, and fortunately, it was recovered and restored. Now, Impression Sunrise, that may, name may not sound familiar, but I'm sure you know that because it was created by Claude Monet, you know, the beautiful little picturesque paintings there in the late 1800s. And in 1985, armed robbers stormed the Marmottan Museum in Paris and took the painting. Luckily, five years later, it was restored back to the museum. So, all that in mind, what do you think that has to do with the message of the Magi coming to worship Jesus? Any thoughts? Mm. Mm. Valuable. Valuable, yes, valuable, yeah. Treasure, that's good, good. So, the, the, she just read your notes. huh? She, just read your notes. <laughs> she did, she just read my notes. Yeah, yeah. The connections are this the birth of Christ, as well as the second coming of Christ that we sell in the Advent, is extremely valuable. In fact, in the eyes of Christians, those two events in our relationship with Jesus are priceless, they are not attainable by earthly wealth, they are not acquirable by, by hard work or stature, or there's no sneaking in the back door. That salvation is priceless. In fact, the Bible talks about our salvation, our individual souls, 
being worth more than the entire wealth of this world. And Jesus brings that salvation to us to minister to us. The other connection with these three paintings is this. Oftentimes during this time of year as we celebrate Advent, we go through traditions such as the Advent, the Christmas tree, uh, singing Christmas songs and all that, that if we are not careful, the true treasure of our salvation in Jesus, the emotion, the reality, the worship of that can be stolen. You know what I'm talking about? You just kind of go through the, the season on kind of a, a flat line. You know, there's really not a lot of ups and downs. You're like, here we go again. It's my 56th year. I've done this before. It's not as exciting. We kind of flatline and just go through the season and kind of looking forward to what's coming. That the message of the Magi with Christmas is that we make time to worship that which is truly valuable and we don't allow that treasure to be stolen from our lives. The gospel message is this. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And that's the story of Christmas. God incarnate in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. Fully God, becoming fully man, and becoming Emmanuel, and dwelling with us to bring us the gospel, the good news message, that of salvation, that of restoring us back, creation with Creator and putting us back in that rightful place of relationship in which God called us to be. Now, as we get into this, think of the extreme amount of effort that God did to bring us back to restoration. He creates the heavens and the earth. He brings in Adam and Eve. He says, go and populate the earth. And the first thing Adam and Eve do is blow it and create the separation between God and man because of sin. God took every effort he could to bring us back to restoration. In the Genesis story, he goes back to Adam and Eve, and although he knows Adam is there, Adam plays this game where it's like, if I can't see you, you can't see me, right, like the kids do. God is calling out for Adam, and Adam is hiding. And we find ourselves in our sin, as we are born into sin, and we live our lives, and we get caught up in the culture of the world, that we run from God. I mean, very seldom do you see people just... You know, they come out as children, toddlers, young teenagers, especially teenagers, running to God saying, oh, I want salvation. Usually they're saying, no, I want what makes me feel good. I want what makes me happy. I want to do what everybody else is doing, right? And in our sin nature, we tend to run from God. In fact, the Bible calls us enemies of God. It says, while we were still in sin and rebellious, Christ died for one group of people, the ungodly. And we go beyond that and realize that Christmas story again, that God takes his only son. Now, those of you who have children, put yourself in that place. You have one child. Would you sacrifice that child for the life of someone else? Especially someone that was corrupt and in sin. I mean, put it in this perspective. Would you sacrifice your only child for someone who was a mass murderer? Would you do it for Charles Manson? Would you do it for someone who was just horribly entrenched in sin and didn't care and was vile and disgusting and loud? That's the image of what God did for us. 
to go to such great lengths to restore us that when the Bible says he, he came to us while we were still in sin and rebellious, that we were at war with God. And can you imagine that we have World War III and you go out and you're on the enemy lines and you cross over the enemy lines as we are winning the war and the other side is losing the war and there's mass chaos and blood and, and savagery in there and you say stop the war for a minute and you walk over and you pick one person on that enemy side that has their gun pointed at you and says I'm taking your place you walk on the American side and live in freedom that's the message of the gospel that God went to such extreme lengths to bring us back to restoration that even though we were in sin and we were vile and we were loud and adamant and barked against God and ran from God and screamed about, I don't want God, that God said, I love you too much and I'm coming to save you. What an amazing message. It's that message of the prodigal son even greater than the prodigal son because the prodigal son the son comes back to God to be a servant but in the gospel message when we came to salvation God can pursued us while we were still running from him to draw us back to him why would God do that well simple one verse in 1st John 4 8 it says this God is love not the conditional love like we see in the world, not the love that says, I'll love you if, or I'll love you when, or I'll love you for what you can do for me. But God is that unconditional love that says, no matter how far you go, no matter what you do, no matter how terrible and what thoughts you think and how far you run, I love you enough to come back after you. It's that gospel story of the good shepherd where he has a hundred sheep and one runs away, he leaves the 99 in safety to pursue the one that seeks out on their own to have things their way and on their terms. Wow, that's kind of a familiar story for us, isn't it? I want it my way, I want it on my terms, right? And I will leave you to go and pursue it. I will leave you to get my way. And God pursues us. And no matter how much we look at God when he finds us and we tell him, we don't want you, we don't love you, we don't care about you, God pursues us because God is love. God is love. And that's the message that we need to remember during this Christmas season to preserve and protect the real treasure that we already have. To preserve and protect the real meaning of the holidays, not some holiday because it's on our calendar and it says December 25th and we get that day off from work, but because the real treasure is in our relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ. And we see that in the Magi. Matthew 2 gives us a short account of three figures in this gospel, three different responses to the birth of Jesus, three different responses to the, the announcement that God has come into the world to bring us salvation, to save us from our sin, to save us from ourselves. Three different responses to the gospel message. The first one is with King Herod. The second one is with the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And the third is the Magi, which we're looking at today. All three of those groups were confronted with the reality of the birth of the Savior into this world at the time, but all three had a very different approach to the coming of Christ in salvation. The question as we move forward is this, 
in this season, as we come and we celebrate the birth of Christ and we look forward to the return of Christ, how do you respond to Jesus? Do you respond like Herod? Do you respond like the scribes and Pharisees? Or do you respond like the Magi? You see, the meaning and the power and the majesty of what happened with the birth of Jesus on that first Christmas day was stolen for Herod and the Pharisees. They never got it. They never felt the impact of it. They never, they never experienced the lifting of the weight of their sins. They never experienced restoration with God. They missed it. That beautiful treasure, that beautiful gift was stolen for them in what God did on that one single night. So as we consider this, we want to follow the Magi's example because in that we find the power, the wonder, the meaning of the holiday is not wasted, is not stolen, and in fact it is experienced in our very life. So enter the wise men, the Magi. We look at Matthew chapter 2 and again as we get into this I want to remind you that you know the traditions that we come about that we have about the beautiful little things with the manger scene and everything some of that is so unbiblical it's a great story but it's not biblical in the fact of what it was so with that in mind let's read Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 and we read this this amazing Christmas story after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the time of King Herod Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked where is the one who has been born king of the Jews we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him when King Herod heard this he was what troubled, troubled disturbed and all Jerusalem with him so it wasn't just King Herod it was the entire city of Jerusalem when Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And their response was, In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child. And as soon as you find him, report to him so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star led them to where it rose, and he went until them stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and did what? Worshipped. Worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's stop there. That's the story of the Magi. And despite what we sing every year about the Magi, the three wise men coming, um, we really don't know if there were three of them or not. We assume there were three because we recognize three things in the Bible. What? Three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we just kind of put that assumption on them and think, well, there were three Magi, or there were three gifts, so there must be three Magi. We also kind of label them as kings, but we don't know that they were kings. 
In fact, the Expositor's Bible Commentary tells us this. It says, in later centuries down into the New Testament times, <coughs> the term magi loosely, loosely covered a wide variety of men interested in dreams, astrology magic, books, and thoughts that contain to mysteries, reference to the future, and the like. So instead of being per se kings or these great wise men, these were astrologers. These were men that were looking to the stars, looking to signs in the world and in the heavens for what was to come for the future so they would know what to do. They would try and read the stars and read those as signs of what is yet to come. But the fact is that's really cool about the Magi that always impacts me is they weren't per se men or women of God. They were foreigners, right? The term we would use would be Gentiles or pagans. They were not God's chosen nation, Israel. But when they saw the star, they knew there was a sign, they knew there was a message, and they sought out what was under that star because they knew how important it was. We do know they came from far. We don't know how far. Perhaps it was Babylon. We don't know what the star was that shone in the sky. Some suggest it was a sign in the heavens and the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that took place around 7 BC. And by the way, if you want to mark your calendars this year, December 21st, you know what's happening again? First time in 800 years? The conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn is happening once again on December 21st. You can go out and see it yourself. No, it'll be cloudy in Utah. It'll be cloudy in Utah. We'll still be in version. <laughs> We'll all travel up to Brighton and Solitude and look from there. Yeah, it'll be inversion, yeah. but it'll still be out there. Jupiter and Saturn will align again on, on December 21st, but we just won't see it. Some also think it was maybe a supernova. Others believe it was just a supernatural event that happened. Some think it was like the, the fire and the cloud that appeared to the Israelites to lead them through their e Egyptian wandering in the Exodus. Um, we don't know. We don't know. But the most amazing thing about this whole story is that these magi, these foreigners, these astrologers, if you'll call them, men who were not astute in the religious laws of the Jews or even seeking that savior, saw something so amazing, so impactful in the night skies that said to them something wonderful has happened that they up and left their entire country with an entire entourage of people and camels and animals and valuable treasure and gifts and they leave and they trek out and again it's not like you and I taking a road trip right you know all of us hopping in Richard Nellen's RV and traveling down to Goblin Valley and spending the weekend you know just a couple hours drive this was day-to-day -day foot travel with animals and treasure and all this stuff on her having to deal with setting up camp every night and taking it down every day traveling a couple miles doing it again being out in the desert being out in the elements this was a whole pursuit to get to where this great light was shining over. It's a familiar story, but what we see in the Magi is the wonder of what happened that first Christmas was not lost to them. It was not stolen from them, as so many people experienced during this time of year. Where the wonder of that first Christmas, or the Christmas we celebrate this year, or the second coming of Christ, the wonder, the majesty, the treasure, the value of that event seems to be kind of just stolen from our hearts, right? The emotion, the feeling, the, the, the reality of even what we're celebrating is somehow missed. And my prayer is that this morning, that the message of Christmas for us 
is not lost. The treasure, the value, the, the magnificence of what Christ did that night is not stolen from our hearts. That we would hold that in our hearts and respond appropriately. And we'll get to how we can do that in a little bit. But first, a little bit more. As we dive into Matthew chapter 2, once again, verses 2 and 4, talks about our three characters. There is Herod, there are the religious leaders, and there are the Magi. And they each have a response to this treasured event in the birth of Christ. Well, in Matthew 2, 4 to 5, we encounter Herod, who is told that the Messiah is born. Now, Herod was a wonderful kind of guy and deeply needed salvation. Herod was the kind of guy that found out two of his sons were, were pushing for power to take over him, so he killed them on his own. Just think of that. A father who is king, who sees his sons uprising, instead of dealing with them or, or, or grooming them for, for the kingdom, says they're too much of a threat, I'm going to take them out myself. That's the kind of guy Herod was. Real nice kind of guy. The kind, you don't send, kind of guy you don't send Christmas cards to and gather together with on Thanksgiving, right? So he heard the message that the Savior had been born. The new king had been born, which threatened him. And so he calls religious leaders together, and they speak to Herod that 700-year-old prophecy out of the book of Micah that says he will be born in Bethlehem. It's really interesting as we look at this, that we have Herod, who doesn't respond well, but now we turn into the religious leaders. What do the religious leaders do? The teachers of the law, the chosen race of God's people in Israel. Here are the religious leaders who go back to the book of Micah, that Old Testament prophecy book about the coming Savior some 700 years earlier, and they say, hey, he's probably over here. Now, the interesting thing is this, these teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, we would call them lawyers nowadays. They were the wise persons about the law. They tell Herod that if he wants to find the savior, the treasure, the new king to go look over here. But do you know what these individuals never do? They never go themselves. They know the message. In fact, as I kind of dug into this, I realized something about this group of individuals. They found more pride and more excitement and, and more joy in reading about the Messiah than knowing the Messiah. You see, their whole focus was being able to give the correct answers, to be smarter than everybody else in the room, to be like, oh yeah, well that's not true, this is really the way it is. Well, this is where you go if you want to find a newborn king. They found such joy in giving that correct answer that they really didn't care about the correct answer himself. What an interesting thing. These are the wisest people that the nation of Israel had. And all they could find joy in was knowing the right answer, that pride of being correct, right? I know the answer to that. I mean, these guys would have been on Jeopardy and had a heyday, right? They had the right answer. They had studied. They had done all this stuff. They knew so much. And yet, in the same irony, they knew so little and were ignorant. Because they knew the correct answer about the Messiah and who the new king was, but they didn't know him personally. 
there was no relational aspect to him. It's interesting that in John 10, 14, Jesus doesn't make this statement. I know my sheep and my sheep know about me. That's not the message, is it? The message is this. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. That's the message. It has nothing to do with knowing the right answer or being able to quote scripture or talk about Bible history or, or Christian tradition. It has nothing to do with having the right answer. It has everything to do with knowing the Savior himself. In fact, 1 Corinthians 8 chapter 1 tells us this. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. We have that old expression that, oh my gosh, you've inflated my head so big I can't even get through the door, right? Knowledge puffeth up. It's like that peacock, that little tiny bird that when it spreads its feathers out looks huge, right? But love, love builds up. There's a tremendous difference between being puffed up, right? Kind of like a Rice Krispie treat. You're kind of puffed rice, kind of empty in calories and everything, just... You're puffed up, but there's nothing of substance there versus being built up. Being built up is that person coming to you when you're down and saying, you know what, you're important, you're valuable, you can do this. You know what, you mean so much to me, we need you so much here. That person saying, you know what, you can, you can do this, you can overcome this in Christ. You are necessary, you are needed, you are important. That's the difference between being puffed up and built up. The religious leaders of the time were what? Puffed up. And because of that, they missed the message of love. Now back to Herod, Matthew 2, 3. Herod is paranoid and power hungry. And as we've seen with his own two sons, if anyone threatens his position, well, the right thing to do is what? Take him out. I mean, anything that threatens you, this is good business practice today, you know, in society. I mean, a lot of astute business people are called to read uh, the writings of the book by Sun Tzu, The Art of War. How do you take out your enemy? How do you surprise them and backstab them and undercut them? How do you have victory over them by force? That's the message of our world. And Herod fit into that just perfectly. He was about self-preservation, and fighting for the status quo, and anything that threatened him, his message was, I will eliminate it. Because I will be in power, and nothing will threaten me. Here's the scary thing for us this morning. At times in our life, we all have a little Herod in us, don't we? We all have a little twinge with those that we love and that closest with us will be like, if you do this one more time, if you threaten me, if you say this, I will, what? Take you out, right? We all have that old sinful nature of a little heritedness that tries to come up. For Christmas, the challenge is to have tradition over worship. Well, we gotta do Christmas this way. Well, if we don't have this, well, then it's not Christmas. But in a Christian view, it still is, right? I mean, think about someone in Africa right now. Someone out on, on the Engedi Plains and they're out there, or the Sahara Desert, let's say. 
You think they got a Christmas tree up? You think it's plugged in with lights? No. You think they got a poinsettia, an advent candle? No. You think they've decorated their huts with beautiful Christmas lights twinkling out in the night sky? No. But can they still celebrate Christmas? Absolutely. You see, sometimes the challenge is we get so caught up in tradition we miss the point. And don't get me wrong, I love the tr Christmas traditions. I love it when Christy sets up the lights to shine in our house at night. I love it when Christy sets up the Christmas tree. I love it when Christy puts out the, the Christmas presents. I love it when Christy bakes the Christmas cookies. You notice one theme in there that's consistent? She does most of the work. I love that stuff. But I'm constantly reminded and pulled back to the fact that even if we didn't have that, if something happened in our life and our financial status and we didn't have that, we as a couple would still have Christmas. We would still have Christmas. And that's the joy of it. So we come to the wise man. We see the religious leaders, well, they were more about knowing about the Messiah than knowing the Messiah. We see Herod, he was more about protecting what was his or what he thought was his, which was a lie anyway, because when he died, guess who got all his stuff? Everybody else, okay? He was more concerned about his, in essence, tradition of being king and protecting that, that no one would threaten that or he would take them out. Now we come to the Magi, as we call them, the wise men. The Bible tells us in Matthew 2 that when they saw the child Jesus with his mother, they did something that retained the treasure of what God did in that night in them forever. Do you know what they did as soon as they saw Mary and the baby Jesus? They bowed down and they worshiped. They worshiped. And kids, I think that's the key for us. It's remembered during this season that we have to worship because we have a relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God, our Savior, and to worship him because he is worthy of glory and praise and honor. That if we lose the worship of our heart, then we're just caught up in busyness, aren't we? There's an old saying that says, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Because when you're busy, your mind is all over. You are sidetracked. You are not focusing on that which is truly important, right? And we need to remember during this season, whether we have much or little, whether we have a Christmas tree and lights and stuff up, or we have nothing, that we still have a chance to worship the king. The three magi, as we call them, we'll just call them the magi came, and it says they bowed down. In other words, they, they put themselves in a humble lower position, and they worshiped someone as greater than them, and then they went a step beyond that. Do you know what they did? They presented their treasures, the thing that they had that was the most valuable to them, that they had taken all the way and carried on their journey for weeks. They took these precious gifts and laid them before Mary and Jesus and gave them to them and said, you are worthy of the best that we have. You are worthy of the greatest treasure we can come up with and we freely give them to you. 
Notice it never says in the Bible that they're like, well, Jesus, I'm going to give you some gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and I want to be blessed ten times over. They didn't give to receive. They gave to give, to worship, because they recognized the treasure of who Jesus was. If you want to guard the treasure and the meaning and the wonder of Christmas this year, I suggest that you start to worship to worship in your heart where no one may see it but you, to worship when you're driving, when you're at work, when, when you're laying in bed at night and you can't sleep. I invite you to worship God as he desires and needs to be worshiped. Now we don't worship God because he needs to be worshiped, right? We worship God because we are in need of that worship. God doesn't need our worship just like he doesn't need our money or anything else. He can recreate that. He can bring forth life from dust and bones. God can do anything he wants to. We are the ones that are in desperate need of worship. And why do we need worship? Because we need to have that reconnection with God once again. The wonder, the majesty, that first day of salvation where God miraculously changed our eternity in a split second. Just like the book of Revelation talks about, when Christ returns and he comes in the air, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Right? Same story. Salvation, changed in a second. Second coming of Jesus, changed in the twinkling of an eye. Into those eternal bodies. You see what happens in worship is worship fuels our gratitude. It recenters us on that which is important. It reminds us of the value of that relationship with God that we already have, and it doesn't become old stuff. Now, those who have been married for a long time, maybe nine months, start to get tired of each other all of a sudden, right? Because the reality of real life starts to set in, right? Now, those of you who have been married more than nine months, like 10, 20 years, the commonness starts to set in and we begin to get in habits where we don't appreciate each other as much as we first did when we were dating, right? I mean, that's a sad thing to say, but isn't that true? We lose the essence of that desire for one another, the beauty of one another, the how important that person is, and we have to go back and remind ourselves of that. When you see people straying away in relationships, the simple fact is, they have misplaced the value of that person and taken it and put it into somebody else. And what we all need to do, if we're in a marital relationship, and what we all need to do when we're in that relationship with Jesus is to put that value back where it belongs. To make ourselves see how beautiful, how handsome, how wonderful, how majestic they really are, how special they are, especially if that person is Jesus in our relationship. That's what we need to do. You see, God doesn't need our worship, but we desperately need that worship to put us back on track in that rightful place to realize the treasure of our relationship with God. Because again, our relationship fuels our gratitude, it fuels our joy, it fuels our focus on the future to where we build up treasure in heaven and not on earth. It reminds us of what is important so we can make good decisions quickly. And it keeps us from being sucked 
into the emptiness of our culture and what they're trying to sell us. That time of worship with God brings us back to where we need to be. The message of the Magi is to fall down and worship and to give. And what simply is worship in the simplest of ways? It's simply this, that in our life, when we worship, what we do is this. We give preference to God. That's really what worship is. The Bible talks about worship of people bowing down and lying down on their face, of clapping their hands, of serving, making sacrifices, of trembling, singing joyfully, uh, kneeling, shouting, singing in, glad in gladness, exalting God, dancing. There's all kinds of worship in the Bible. But however you choose to worship, whether you do any of those or not, it's simply giving preference to God in your life. Saying, Lord, you come first before my desires, what I want, what I think I need, what I want to happen, how I want the future to be, how I want that person to respond to me, what I want to happen this year, what I get or receive. Jesus, you are first. And whatever you allow me to have, because all good things come from the Father above, whatever you and your Father in heaven allow me to have is perfect. Because I realize the undeserving person that I am. That in spite of my frailties, you give. In spite of my faults and my blunderings, you give. In spite of all my failure and my sin, you give. You forgive restore. The Magi worshipped in their way by bowing down before Jesus and then offering gifts and other offerings. The shepherds out in the fields as we looked at last week worshipped with their proclamation of the good news. The city could not shut them up once they saw Jesus. That was their worship of proclaiming the gospel message. The angels Worship in song as the shepherds are on the field and the glory of God appeared to them. And Mary worshiped by pondering all these things and treasuring them in her heart. Some had a vocal worship. Some had a very obvious worship. Some, like Mary, had a very private worship. But it was all worship. In fact, all of these gave God the best of what they had, didn't they? We are coming into what we call Christmas on our holiday calendar, December 25th. When most of us, if not all of us, have the day off. And we gather together and we open gifts or we eat food or we sing a few songs, we watch some Christmas specials on TV. But what I want to challenge you with this, not only on that Christmas day, but even today and leading up to then, and then every day after is make time to learn from the wise men, the Magi, and to worship the Christ, Jesus the Lord. Sometimes, or the Bible, not sometimes, it does say the challenge of one of the churches in the book of Revelation that they are challenged with is that they have forgotten their first love. Well, every Christian comes to a point in their life where that is a temptation or a reality, isn't it? We have forgotten our first love. And we have forgotten how beautiful that relationship is. 
how restoring. I mean, you think about when you were first in salvation or if you were in a relationship when you were first in that relationship, you could do anything and ain't nobody going to stop you and ain't nobody going to tell you how to do it because you know how to do it and you're going you're gonna to be there. And man, when you're there with them, you are just like walking on cloud nine and things are awesome, right? You act weird and you're okay with that, right? And that's what it is when we come and worship Jesus to re remember that day of salvation that God himself came for us while we were running the other way. No matter how much we tried to do to keep God from seeking us out, he sought us out anyway and pursued us in love. And then he restored us. And not only did he restore us, he said, I'm going to give you gifts and I'm going to give you a future. And I'm going to give you a place to be with me. I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my kingdom in heaven. And I won't come back for you until it's complete and right. This fourth Sunday in Advent, we simply need to worship. Because again, God doesn't need our worship, but we do. We do. And we need to give God preference. And that time of worship, whether public or private, that time of praise and adoration changes our heart, changes our mind, changes our lives into something that no circumstance, no COVID, no financial situation, nothing can steal from us. May we all celebrate the true meaning of Christmas this year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the reality of the Magi. Lord, whether they were three or 30, whether they were kings or not, whether they were foreigners or not, it, it doesn't matter. What they share with us is the importance of knowing what's truly valuable and not letting that be stolen from us, but pursuing that until we find that treasure. And Lord, when we find you as our treasure, we come like the Magi. We bow down before you in worship and praise and honor, and we give you the best of all that we have, and we place you above our lives. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would worship you this day in spirit and truth, whether it be public or private. We pray that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation in our lives. And we pray that, Lord, we would not allow the treasure of that relationship with you to be stolen this season. Lord, to you be all glory, all honor, and all praise for you and you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen.